You're listening to the Pop Tart Podcast. Girls down. You already know. What are your memories of being his space mom? To have a character that, that means something to them and you're a role model, that I had never experienced. Children need to feel that someone believes in them. When I went to my first foster home, I came into the door and your face was on the TV. I think we, we want to start to live more of the Star Trek creed in our everyday lives. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Pop-Tarts. Bim, 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 I'm Emily Rems. I'm Callie Watts. We're both editors of Bust Magazine in New York City. We love talking about pop culture. We love talking to you about pop culture. And today's guest is absolute sci-fi royalty. Gates McFadden is best known for playing Dr. Beverly Crusher on Star Trek The Next Generation, both on TV from 1987 through 1994 and in four feature films. Before that, she was working with Jim Henson as a choreographer and directed the choreography and puppet movement for Labyrinth with David Bowie. For many years, she also taught in university theater departments, including at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, Brandeis, Harvard, Purdue, Temple, University of Pittsburgh, and USC. After Star Trek, she was the artistic director of the Ensemble Studio Theater in Los Angeles and started appearing alongside her former Star Trek castmates at fan conventions starting in 2014. Now, she's hosting a riveting podcast series called Gates McFadden Investigates, Who Do You Think You Are?, in which she has totally unexpected conversations with members of her Star Trek family. I cannot wait to talk to her all about it. Welcome, Gates McFadden. Yay, you're here. (laughs) Yay, I'm here. (laughs) Hello. How are you guys? It's good to see you. Good to see you. It's so good to see you. I would like to begin, if you don't mind, by asking you, about your origin story. So please, if you could, fill us in a little bit on where you were born, what your early life was like, and how you found your way to the role of Dr. Beverly Crusher on Star Trek The Next Generation in 1987. I was born in uh, Akron, Ohio. I'm a Buckeye. And uh, I grew up mainly in Cuyahoga Falls, but Akron was like 20 minutes away. And I did a lot in the Cleveland area. And Cleveland was a thriving city at that time. It was the rubber capital of the world, Akron was. We had blimps and Firestone, Goodyear, Goodrich. I mean, it was like anything rubber, you know? Um, So I actually, I loved it. I grew up uh, in a tiny, tiny apartment that I I slept on the couch with my brother for years, you know, and I went to the, we walked to school and there really weren't any girls in my neighborhood. It was all boys. If only I had been a tomboy, but I really kind of wasn't. Uh-huh. And I mean, you know, we would, I'd have to learn how to do the snowball fights and do everything like that. But um, I really liked to play with the boy who lived in the apartment downstairs. And that was what I have some very strong memories of this little boy, Jeffrey who uh, I was going to grow up, we were going to get married, and he he was the only one who would play sort of, like we would just, we'd sing to my mother, you know, we'd sing songs for days. <laughs> and <laughs> and he was just great. And I, I think he was, he was not uh, a macho guy himself. And uh, 
And then when we, my parents had been working, trying to save money to get to a better neighborhood and we, they bought a lot. So this was, this is seminal to me. That's why I'm focusing on it so much. And we bought a lot and they built a house themselves. My mother laid the floors, my dad, I mean, they, we were 30 years, we built this house (laughs) and, and, um, but when the two weeks after we moved, my, my friend Jeffrey was hit by a car and died. (gasps) And that was a, that was tough because it, it sort of was like that past, that whole thing was gone. And then I, I sort of had best friends who were girls for a while because I think it was a very, um, he and I had a great relationship. I just remember he was my playmate when I was little, you know, I had a brother, but, and he was a playmate too, but he was older and he was bullied by the older guys. Uh, we had this guy named Roy Pyle who, was the grocery store down the street, this little divey place, totally divey, not nothing as fancy as a 7-Eleven. And he would like, <laughs> he would like grab me and go, tell me where your brother is, you know, tell me where he is, you know, and I'll give you a popsicle if you'll tell me, you know, it was one of those kinds of first seven years. And then it became really lovely. And I lived in this place that was, we had a little natural lake. We could go ice skating in the winter, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and then when I left for college, that was it. You know, I, uh, I knew I wouldn't be back. I I kind of knew it. I wanted to, uh, explore. Right on. And you, I know that you studied in Paris. Yep. That was, yep. And then you were like all about the choreography. Well, I was acting, I was acting all the time and I was into directing when I was, um, I had taken as an undergraduate a lot of graduate acting courses. You could audition and get in the classes. And it's funny because most of my friends wanted to go to New York, get an agent, and become famous. I mean, that was kind of like they wanted to become a star. And I think that with all the tumult that was happening in the 60s, that that I was very... Um, it was a whole new world for me because it, it certainly wasn't happening quite like that in Ohio, although we had had Kent State. But it was a very conservative area where I grew, grew up, really. And I wanted to change the world. And I think I was actually a little bit frightened of New York. I later ended up living in New York City for 22 years, loving it. And you forgot to say I taught at Tisch School of the Arts, which I Right, adore. of course. I adore. Hometown. Yeah. Um, I had some amazing students there. Um, But at any rate, I think that when I saw Lecoq and I took his workshop, it was only for three days, I think. He blew my mind because he was about everything. He was about, you know, architecture, the way people move. He synthesized movement, voice, text, and design for me. And uh, I mean, no one in my family had ever our only vacations were driving to see our grandparents. Right. So it was a big deal for me to fly over there alone. And I think it was probably one of the toughest periods of my life because I was deeply lonely, but it was life changing. So once I was able to do that, I think I became not fearless, but I had, you know, if I knew I could survive that, where yeah. I, was, I was broke and I really mm-hmm. had to learn how to speak another language. And I also had to learn what it was to be an American when Nixon was president and Vietnam, mm. right? 
it's like when Trump, like my French friends are like, what is the deal? (laughs) Right. But um, so I think that's a lot of what happened in Lecoq. We really would work on things. We had to develop our own stuff. It had to be creative. And I, it just happened that when I came back as his assistant at Harvard, and we did a longer workshop, like three weeks, everybody asked him to teach at their colleges and drama schools. And he, I, he did not want to in any way stay in the United States. He wanted to get back to France. But he said, and I was only 21 or something, he said, ask her to teach it. She can teach it. And that's how it happened. I could, if I had applied for jobs in these theater departments, I never would have gotten them, you know, as a woman and all of that. But as the fact that he had said, go with her, that was the recommendation. And so it was like that instead of waitressing, basically, you know, it was like, okay, um, I'll see what I've learned. I'll see if I can teach. It took me a long time to actually become a good teacher. Um, but that's the story. And, and then I finally stopped teaching because I had wanted, I'd been missing acting. I would do occasional theater performances and I directed, which I love. Uh, and then I would do some occasional choreography, but it wasn't like I was, you know, saying I'm a choreographer. I was sort of, I was for certain companies like the Brooklyn Academy of Music Theater Company. We had a, an artistic director, David Jones, was from the RSC, and he had watched some classes at heart at, uh, that I was teaching at Brandeis. And he said, would you come to New York and, you know, direct, uh, do movement for our company? But see, I could commute. At that time, they had that one-hour Eastern shuttle. From mm-hmm. New- and you could get there. This shows my age. You could drive and get there 30 minutes before your flight was leaving, park the car, get to the gate and get on the plane, and you could buy your ticket on the plane and still have a drink. That's amazing. (laughs) Before we dive into Star Trek, what can you tell me about your life as a choreographer, specifically working alongside Jim Henson and working with David Bowie on Labyrinth? That must have been so amazing. Well, David Bowie is one of my, you know, favorite stars. I think I was... Um, I was so over my head on many aspects of the movie. I had never done something as large as that. It was a huge production. I was there for a year. And I had done pre-work with him. I had, not with David, but with Jim. But Jim had basically left me on my own. He would, you know, give me like, here's what I need and do this for one week. I have to go back to the States. Good luck. And I think that he tested me on different projects because this was going to be a big one. And so, you know, I, I thought I had lost uh, some important acting jobs. My acting career had actually, I had stopped teaching and my acting career, I, I finally, you know, did something from James Lapine and Des Mackinup. They said, you should be acting. And very quickly I got an agent and I was doing great. Um, it was happening for me. And then I had an accident, a ski accident, and I lost all of my jobs. I mean, oh. I, lo- I lost them. I, I was going to be in Woody Allen's Hand and Her Sisters. I was going to, I was shooting something um, on a soap for two months, I, you know, and then there was another thing and I'd been tested for something with De Niro or something. I don't know. It was a, and then I just kind of, and Jim had kept grooming me for this, but he never told me what was happening. But he said, oh, you can act the part of Jennifer Connelly's mother if you come and do this project. 
So I, that's what decided me. I said, okay, I'll do all the other stuff and that. And then it turned out in English equity wouldn't let me do it. They said, no, Rude. It yeah. Thank you for saying that. Okay. <laughs> of course. Yeah. I, I just have made, uh, I've learned so much by working with different people and David Bowie is so, was so extraordinary. He acted like it was just the normalest thing in the world to be a dragon, Goblin King, you know, the <laughs> Goblin King. It was like nobody I know could have walked on stage in that gear with those stiletto. Uh, they were big heels she had on, you know, and he just pulled it off. He's so amazing. So moving on to Star Trek, your character was critical to the long soap operatic arc of Star Trek The Next Generation because Dr. Crusher was the aptly named crush of the ship's captain, played by Patrick Stewart, and that chemistry could not be easily duplicated. However, you were fired from the show after one season. From what I understand, it was for speaking your mind about some of the racism and sexism that you observed being written into the show. And then after a lackluster second season, you were somehow convinced to return for season three and you stayed. Can you walk me through what you were observing in season one that made you speak up? I think it's really amazing that you did and what your thought process was upon leaving and then returning. Well, I mean, first of all, I was told by somebody very recently, Gates, you weren't fired. Your option wasn't picked up. Well, oh, I see. You know, to me, to me, that that was sort of the same, but whatever. Um, it was it was uh, just a brutal lesson about Hollywood. I think I had come from academia and New York theater where you would speak up about things and everyone just wants to make the play better and you would solve it, you know, together. But there's a major political structure and hierarchy. And it also was a very um, male production team, I would say, even though th- we had a couple women on it, there, it was... It was, you know, not like now, which is much, much better, much more inclusive. So I, yeah, there were just certain things like, uh, you know, when, when we'd go to a planet where there's all these women and the first thing that happens is they fall in love with the strong male guy. I mean, I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, come on, come on. You know, stuff like that. I said, that's just absurd. It's embarrassing. <laughs> it's not, <laughs> right? You know, we got, they have a little bit more. I mean, I like Riker too, but come on, Right. So it was just, <laughs> it was stuff like that. And, and, and I, I also, it, there was one, it was one writer in particular, uh, the others I was fine with. It was just, he definitely saw women, especially the mother of Wesley Crusher, I think in a, in a particularly limited way for me, I, um, have raised a son who's now 30 and we, 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 for his whole life, we talked about everything. I mean, we would talk about philosophy. We would talk about, you know, we'd analyze books and movies and whatever, as well as human behavior. And we'd have very, very deep and profound conversations. And I said that there's never that any profound conversation he has with one of the male characters. And Uh I said, I understand how it's important that he has a strong male in his life. I get it. But he also sometimes should be tempered by talking to his single mom, that kind of thing, or having an appreciation. We could have been doing actual research more, which I think, um, I mean, certainly that's, 
that's how my son, as a composer, and that's how I do. I'll I'll throw ideas by him if I'm directing something or whatever, and that's what I had complained about. And I think it really was not the way he wanted to see the character. So that's what happened, and it was a shock to me. I was uh, very distressed because I had really felt I was I thought I was doing a good job, and it's the character. You were. <laughs> I had not seen any of the second season or anything, but was very moved by an outpouring of letters from fans who wrote Paramount and wrote me. I mean, I got thousands of letters. And that was the first time that I actually understood the power of fans. And that was the first time I understood that people could actually like your character that much. Because you don't, you know, when you're in a smaller theater, like I, you just don't have that feeling. It's a different thing. But to have a character that, that means something to them and you're a role model that I had never experienced. That was the beginning of my understanding the power of the show, which I think is an, a tremendously important show. And I know that from the fans I've met. You know, the enduring popularity of Star Trek has so much to do with looking towards the future and imagining what a more evolved version of ourselves might be, which is why there's so many different fans, because the future is so multifaceted. It contains every part of our lives. And so people um, focus on the part of the future that's the most interesting to them. And, and so there's just this endless this endless fandom around it. The aspect of the franchise that I'm most keenly aware of, and you've already touched on it, is how the writers imagine what a woman's life might be like in the distant future. Right. In terms of Star Trek, we've come a long way from the great Nichelle Nichols playing Uhura in a mini dress in 1966, all the way through to the amazing Sonequa Martin-Green Who's playing Michael Burnham today? She is amazing. Oh my God, I love her. I love her performance. That beginning, the beginning episode of season three. I mean, and those first episodes, she was tremendous. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Within that continuum, your character, Doctor Crusher, was created in the late '80s as a single mom raising a son on a starship while working full-time as a doctor and part-time as a sex symbol whenever they decided to write you this, some sensual storyline like the one where you were seduced by a by Scottish a space ghost, <laughs> by a lamp, essentially, a lamp uh, masquerading as a Scottish space ghost. You were this embodiment of an 80s modern woman doing it all and having it all. Meanwhile, in real life, you were the only cast member, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you were the only one actually trying to raise a child while holding down a job on one of the most demanding shows on television. Tell me your thoughts on the Star Trek version of womanhood, um, <laughs> especially the way you were asked to play it. Well, I don't know. Let's, that's a very interesting question. Um, I, now, others, when we were doing the movies, other people had had children by then. Their wives had had children, right? LeVar was a parent and Jonathan was a parent. Patrick's children were already older. Um, and uh, but so he wasn't, you know, having to raise his kids in that particular way. It was it was tough because I had hoped that they would use the pregnancy. Instead, my parts got smaller because they hid me behind a desk. They didn't want me to be Your seen. parts got smaller, but your coats got much bigger. <laughs> they did indeed. And that was that to me was a shame because I thought that could be very interesting with Picard or whatever, like who got her pregnant or whatever, you know. Um, 
maybe she's doing a test tube baby. Who knows? It could have been. Maybe it was the space ghost. Yeah. That's it, right? So uh, that was too bad. And that was four seasons. And then when I had the baby, so I had the baby like um, immediately after we stopped. It was planned. I On my due date, I started having contractions. It was amazing. And I loved being pregnant, by the way. I have to say, I am not one of those people who had a rough time. My mother had a horrible time, but I did not. But um, when I would have to nurse, or even if you're pumping, it takes 20 minutes. That's the deal. It's just that's how long it takes. And yes, there would be the guys were not happy. No matter what they say now, I always was. I, I remember being sort of in tears sometimes in my trailers, not because they were nasty, because they hadn't gone through it yet. So if you haven't gone through it, you don't understand. You know, the baby's going to cry. This is what you have to do. And if you have enough power in Hollywood, you can do it easily, right? It was like mid, midway for me. I mean, people were nice, but there were it was it was also tough to be the only one doing that. Um, other people obviously have had to do it and have done it. I'm sure better than me. But the lucky part was is I didn't live far away, so I could have a babysitter bring my baby down, so I could nurse the baby, which was what I really did want to do that. And what was great also is that my son never watched the show. I didn't want him to get enamored of seeing me on the screen. I actually, by design, did not allow a TV in the house while he was young. Uh, if he wanted to see something, he would see it at his friends. Because I just didn't want that to be weird. But what he did do, and I always would let him see me work, so he would come and he saw his uncle Brent in gold and he didn't, he couldn't recognize Michael Dorn out of makeup, which was hilarious. You know, I mean, everyone was sweet. Jonathan would read a storybook that I would bring and you know, everyone was adorable to him and he loved, he learned to walk on the bridge. Basically he would walk that little thing. He loved looking at the fish and uh, the ship, you know, in the captain's ready room. So we would go to where, and he certainly loved the, the, the table with the candy. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I learned a lot because when we, when we did the first movie, the ship crashes or what was the movie? The ship crashes. Um, is it one of the, whenever it crashed, I guess it's that first contact. I'm like blanking now. You know what? I came to them late. So I sort of watched them all on top of each other. And yeah. in my, I can't assign a title to what happened in each one. Right. Well, I'll catch hell for not remembering, but whatever. <laughs> my son was three and the ship crashes. And I thought he would like to see the cool fire effects and everything. And I brought him in and he just started sobbing because oh. that was like, that was like his home. And I had just not oh. gotten that. Oh. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And I kept saying, oh, it's pretend, but you know, I've seared him for life. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like it wasn't quite as evolved behind the scenes as they pretended it was on the show, but that maybe you helped Star Trek overall as a culture to evolve. Well, I'm not going to give myself credit for that. Who knows about that? I'll tell you, the one who helped it for me was Whoopi. Whoopi would walk on that set and it was a woman's set and I loved it. <laughs> I think it's always whoever seems to have the most power. She was a big movie star and she was, she's also a remarkable human being. I mean, let's be honest. She's just amazing woman. And 
so she would be on the set and I just adored the days that she was there. You know, she really, to me was, um, again, it's like David Bowie, people who are the big stars who are just so amazing. They're nice people and they treat everybody, um, the same. They don't, you know, they're not pretentious. They don't think of themselves as being a celebrity, you know, and uh, which is great. So it was wonderful when she was around. She definitely got to wear the best hats on the show. <laughs> I know, I, I know, for sure. I would like to talk now about your new podcast. It's called Gates McFadden Investigates. Who do you think you are? And in it, you have these totally unexpected and surprising conversations with the actors who you call your space friends from Star Trek. And admire, I admire what you do on that show so much oh, because, oh, thank you. as you well know, there are few actors alive who have been interviewed more than those of you who have been on Star Trek. I myself was sweating it out, trying to think of how I could talk to you in a way that you haven't been talked to a hundred million times before. <laughs> Yet somehow you manage to charm your space friends into revealing sides of themselves that I've never heard before. I've heard every single episode. And in each one, oh. I feel like I'm learning as much about you as I am about the guest, which is also so interesting. I have to know what your strategy was for talking to the Star Trek cast in a fresh way uh, where that isn't retreading uh, the past of people who have been so often interviewed in so many ways. Well, the first thing was to, I definitely was not going to talk about Star Trek. And if it came up, it would come up on its own in some reference that seemed right. So I had no idea what I was going to do exactly. I knew that what you just mentioned, that was the tricky part. How do I get them to talk about new things? And some people, it was more difficult than others because I thought the hardest part was to get them to do a give and take. We're so used to, it's what I'm even doing now. I think when you've been interviewed a lot, like we take over a little, do you know what I mean? Like we, we feel we're supposed to, we're supposed to perform. So it's like, I, I, I go, okay, keep going with that story gates because it'll make a complete section. And that's not necessarily true. I'm just projecting that on you. You know, I mean, it might be that you wanted a totally different kind of conversation. So I, what I would do is I would really research the person, these good friends of mine, and I would try to go back and watch all these different things, things I had not seen. I'd go back and I'd follow every lead I could. And I would come up with questions and I would have genuine questions. I would also know things that they liked. So I would try to find different things to start with. Like, you know, I would just like the baseball cards with Jonathan. It was just a way to start. We didn't really go with it, but it was like a way you start. And uh, I had read that his father liked Ring Lardler. And so I, I got the book of his story. Or my mother had the book. That's what it was. My mother had the book. And I was like, I don't like this stuff. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> you know. So that was just a way in to get to other things where you start talking about family. And I knew some people had asked me not to bring up certain things. Like I knew that it was okay to talk about Nana, what, what the subject we talked about. I knew it was a, a difficult subject. I would never have done that without saying, are you okay with this? I told any, all of my friends, I said, if there's anything you want out, I give you my word, I will take it out. You just need to tell me. So they were relaxed. That's the first thing. 
And, and then I would, I could, I think editing is what makes it work, to be honest. I think editing and getting, you have sections that are really terrific. And I learned how to sound edit. So they were going to do all the editing and they did the first edit of Jonathan's and I heard it and I went, nope, this is not okay. I don't like this. Uh -uh." You are editing the show? Yeah, I'm editing it. Wow. Now what they do is I do all of the cuts and everything. You know, I take out the, I, I happen to have this obnoxious habit of sniffing my nose all the time, which drives me crazy. (laughs) So I try to take my sniffs out to save the audience from that. Although there's, they're in there. But, you know, it's things like that. And I, I just learned how to tighten things up and, and uh, you know, I'll say, no, take, take my response out. It's more important what they're saying. Just take, you know, I, there are things like that that I do. I don't change what the, the whole gist of the conversation is, not at all. But I do edit it. And then when I've done that, and it takes a long time. Like I had, I had two and a half hours of material with Will Wheaton. And I first edited it down to one show. And I went, no, I've lost too much. And I said, can I make it two, two shows? And I still had to lose um, like 40 minutes. I still had to get rid of 40 minutes. So that's where the editing comes in. And it's what you select. Because I'm a director and I know what I like. You know, I know the parts that are interesting to me. And I also leave in some things that I say that I am embarrassed by or whatever. I go, look, you just leave it in, you know, it's just, that's, that's what you said. <laughs> um, but they then, then when I'm finished with that, which takes days sometimes, uh, then they will make the sound richer or something. I don't know what they do, but they do something that makes it all, you know, come together. But, um, no, it takes, I mean, I must've spent two weeks on Will Wheaton's just solid, eight hours a day, 10 hours in the studio, just in this little studio that I made in my house. I don't doubt it. Cause we make this, this, uh, podcast and we know how long it takes. I'm just pretty, I'm astonished that you are doing your own editing because that job is so hard. And, um, you, you really are, uh, a multi-talented individual. <laughs> well, my mother always thought so. <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned the the interview with Will Wheaton. I would love to talk more about that. So far, you've done two interviews, which you've mentioned, that were so deep and covered so much ground that they needed to be expanded into two episodes. And the first was with your space son, Will Wheaton. I found that whole exchange between the two of you incredibly poignant, especially when he was opening up about how when he was a young teen on Star Trek in the 80s, He had no desire to be an actor. He was being terrorized at home by his stage parents. And you and Jonathan Frakes in particular essentially became surrogate parents to him on the set at a time when he really needed the comforting presence of caring adults in his life. What are your memories of being his space mom and your thoughts on maintaining that nurturing relationship with him so many years after the show is over? Well, I don't want to give myself too much credit in the beginning because I think I just treated him as I would like to treat most people who are talented and or untalented, just with respect. I, I wholeheartedly uh, embraced him as a an artist, as a teenager. I mean, he was 14. I didn't expect him to act like he was 30. Um, I, I had 
really loved some of his performances. I thought he was an extremely sensitive young man. I saw that immediately with him. So we would have fun, okay? And I I also saw sometimes he was he was like, oh gee, I wish I was doing something else. I got that, but it seemed appropriate for the circumstances. I think um I mean I think actually it's become more that we've become closer since time passed because I put my son through the 14 year old, which is when I first met William. I understand better what that, that whole process is being a teenager. And I'm also genuinely impressed with him as a, a, a person, the way he's gone after things that interest him, like the game podcast that he was doing. And, uh, you know, he's had a very interesting life. He's extremely articulate. I think out of all of us, he is the most articulate about the meaning of Star Trek uh, to the world and, and its importance to him. So I, I really, I believe in him. And I think he genuinely felt my belief. And I think Jonathan believes in him that way too. And I think that's what children need to feel that someone believes in them. And that's what, to me, if I've done anything, but it was easy to do, I've given that to him because I do care about him. I think his, his wife, Anne, is fantastic. I like her very, very much. And, you know, um, every time I see them, it's a pleasure. I heard you say in one interview that you had a stalker and you had to sleep with a knife under your pillow for a very long time. And then the most devastating interview you did on the podcast, you've already alluded to it, was when you talked with Nana Visitor from Deep Space Nine about the absolutely horrific, bone-chilling, the way she recounted an incident in which she was kidnapped, she was raped, there was a home invasion um, that she experienced while she was making the show, and she was targeted because she was making the show. Um, Looking back, do you think the entities who have made so much money off of Star Trek well, wait, have a can responsibility? I, can I just say one thing? I don't know that she was yes. targeted because of that. I think she was late at night and she was driving and these guys saw her. I don't think. Well, she- I thought that she said that because she was an actor, the thought was that she wouldn't press charges because it would ruin her oh, career. Oh, I, I see. In that way. Yes. Oh. Yes. Okay. Right. Looking back, do you think that these powers that be who've made so much money off of Star Trek, do you think that they have a responsibility to better protect the women whose lives are endangered because of the obsessive nature of some of the fans of this show? Does that I ever... don't see I, I I mean maybe that's true, but here's the thing. I don't think you should equate that with what's happened with Nana, although you'd have to ask her for that. Right. Her reason of not of of you know saying no, I want to prosecute, that's a whole different thing. The, the way it happened, it, it's like it can happen when you're driving home late at night. I mean, that can happen to any of us. And I think we, we want to start to live more of the Star Trek creed in our everyday lives. I have grown to appreciate it enormously. When I was stalked, I was teaching at University of Pittsburgh. And I was stalked by somebody who was... I think, you know, mentally ill, 
but he was obsessed with me and he had a whole imaginary life with me. Uh, Brent had somebody who was like that during the show with him. And uh, the guy sh would drive through a snowstorm seven states away and knock at the door and there he'd be. I mean, and, you know, would grab me. I mean, it was like terrifying. And that was early on. And they it was before Rebecca Schaefer got killed in her lobby before there were any stalking laws. And the police were really nice because I called the police several times. I mean, he had done things like when I was getting my Brandeis job, he had sent postcards to this job I had never started. I was going to move to Boston and start teaching. He had open postcards to the department saying that we were involved and we were lovers and all this whole fantasy uh. thing. And it was just like, what? Uh, you know, it was something I'd even never heard of is this kind of obsessive thing to somebody where it was made up, but he was certain that we were meant for each other and we had this past together. I mean, he interrupted my class. Uh, it, 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 he put oh. me in the most difficult, quasi humiliating, like, what do I do here? Do I just call him out? You know, I'm, I, I'm with other people and, and he obviously was mentally ill. There's no, there's no two ways about it. You wouldn't do that otherwise. So I became very reticent about being in big places and having everybody know about me. Uh, it subliminally, I think, had to do with changing, using my middle name and not Cheryl G. McFadden. I thought, oh, my God, to do something on TV. I suddenly got a few nights of panic thinking he was going to start up again because it had just kind of died down. <laughs> I hadn't heard from him for years, like about, I hadn't heard for about three or four years. And then all of a sudden I was like, Oh God, oh, that you know, was terrifying when they come back. Yeah. So that, that was why. And I, so I was the last one to do conventions because I, you know, I was, I was, I was scared. That's really the, mm -hmm. the truth. I, I didn't trust what was going to happen. And then, you know, people would do things like send naked pictures and drawings and stuff. And, and I could laugh that off, but then the creepiness of somebody doing it more than once and doing it enough times. And you're sort of like, okay, it's uh, stop. So I, I think I was very protective my, for many years with the whole Star Trek thing. And at conventions, I think I was sort of, I look back at some of my, uh, interviews with people. And I'm like, wow, you sound like, who are you, who are you acting? <laughs> you know, it doesn't sound like me. So it's taken me a while to just sort of be the person that my friends actually know me as. I've told this story before, but it's, it was such an important thing that happened to me. This wonderful man about 30 years old had come up to my table. This has now got to be five years ago. And he just saw me and he burst into tears. Now that happens because we're projecting that happens. Yeah. It's not again. And I never feel embarrassed by it. I'm like, just do it, you know? Um, and so, so that was happening. And he said, I'm sorry. I really swore I wasn't going to do this. But when I went to my first foster home, I came into the door and your face was on the TV and for the next, like, nine foster homes, you were the one constant, and you were like my mother. Oh. And, oh, my God, that still gets to me when I even think about it, because just to be, thank God there was a show like Star Trek, to have a constant, right? To have something. Um, 
and he was such an extraordinary guy. He really was. And I was like, wow, I, I want to bow down to you because you seem incredibly cool and together for somebody who has had that many foster homes as a child. How difficult is that? Right. I, yeah. Yeah. I would like to know Gates McFadden. Are you a feminist? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. With, with total pride. And I always was, I was in the sixties. I, uh, I watched my mother suffer because of sexism, like madmen sexism. And, uh, I've had quite a few instances of the madmen kind of sexism and I, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> We have reached the final question, the question that I ask all of our guests, and that is a pop cultural question. What you watching? We want to know about books and movies and music and television and music videos, anything that you are consuming pop culturally, we want to know about it. Gates McFadden, what you watching? Well, last night I just rewatched, do you know who Stromae is? Stromae. Yes. Sounds familiar. He's uh-huh, like a, a gender nonconforming pop star from the future. Right. But he also, he made up his name. His name is Paul uh, Vanderson. He's from Belgium. He's, uh, he's kind of just like, wow. And he's put two albums out. He's probably going to be putting more out, but he does, he's the combination of theater. He does animation in his shows. He's brilliant lyricist, brilliant singer, how he puts the stuff together. His concert that you can see online is so brilliant. I don't even know where to start. So I've, I've, I've told so many people about him for the last many years, ever since, because I go to France. So I, I knew about him as soon as he hit it in France. He's the one that even Kanye West used a leur en danse, you know, ah. there's that. Okay. His songs are just Amazing. And he's like a philosopher and a social commentary person. He's the whole deal. He's what I always wanted to be. He's the living, (laughs) you know, he's the living artist I always wanted to be. Um, (laughs) Lost Secrets of Master Musicians, A Window into Genius by David Jacobson, given to me by my son. And I'm telling you, I don't know, the, the first chapter, which I just finished like last week, is Fabulous. So I, I, I'm looking forward to this one. A Swim in a Pond in the Rain by George Saunders is brilliant book. I've loved every minute of it. Like he really, he's a writer and he tells you, you read some and then you go, what have you learned by the part you've just read? Mm-hmm. So it helps you if you want to be a writer, because I'm thinking I want to try to write, not a memoir, but <laughs> we'll see, you know. And I've watched tons of documentaries. I mean, oh my gosh, from Tiger Woods to the Britney Spears to the Woody Allen, and you're just like, oh, oh yeah, wow. <laughs> there's a lot there, going on. There's a lot going on, but amazing things. I also saw The Underground Railroad, which I thought was pretty brilliant, I have to say. Oh, I read the book. I'm, I'm looking forward to watching it. I, I, he's one of my favorite directors. I think he does incredible stuff. And uh, I hadn't read the book, but I, I was blown away by the the surrealism in it and the story and the acting and how he takes time. He takes time, which they do a lot of European directors take more time than we do here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think Nomadland did that. It took time. Yeah. You know? Yes. There you are. 
That's what I thank you so much. Gates, you are such a delight and a treasure. And I'm so happy (laughs) and excited that you were on our show. It's really a very exciting day for us. So much. It was awesome. Well, you guys are really great and you've had great guests and all the best to you. And um, thank you for asking me to be on. We are going to take the very briefest of breaks. And when we reconvene, I am going to ask Callie and hopefully Callie will ask me, what what you you watching? Before we get back to the show, I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Wolfie Vibes Publicity. If you're working on a new project and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after, consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be, and you'll even have fun in the process. Get in touch via wolfievibespublicity.com for details and quotes. And tell them that Pop-Tart sent you. Essentially, I started it because every female comedian I know was amazing and hardworking and hilarious and I knew would make great podcasts. And every male comedian I know already had a podcast and was doing their own thing. (laughs) Hi, I'm Kate Moldenhauer, the founder of More Banana Podcasts, a comedy podcast network entirely produced, hosted, and led by women. We have shows about politics. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. When the Supreme Court puts stuff on their calendar, they use the word docket. So their Google calendar is a docket. Is a docket. So technically, I have a docket. You have a docket. We all have docket. We all have a docket. Sex. Welcome to my vagina. I'm Jesse Karen. This is Rebecca Frank. What were ancient Greek dildos made of, Jesse? They were made of padded leather and, yep, anointed with olive oil. (laughs) Scams. I'm Caitlin Bradley Smith. <laughs> and, and we, we love scams. scams. She tells them she's a German Russian heiress and she seems like she has a lot of money and people buy it. That's yeah. basically what's happening. So as soon as she got a loan, she would cash it as much as she could out before anybody caught on. Which Amazing. Was so smart. I mean, so like, smart. <laughs> I mean, it's terrible, but like to take that money out immediately. Because women are actually pretty versatile and funny. More Banana is a network of women's voices, unfiltered and uninterrupted. Find us everywhere you get your podcasts and learn about our growing roster of shows at morebanana.com. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Hey, Pop-Tart listeners. Have you been trying to record your own podcast, but you keep getting bogged down by technical problems? Luscious Logan can take the raw recordings of your show, edit and produce them to give them that rich, full body sound that you hear right now. If you have a deep need to express yourself and sound good in the process, reach Luscious Logan. LusciousLogan13 at gmail.com. That's LusciousLogan13 at gmail.com. If you want to have that luscious sound. Yes, yes, we are. Callie, we talked to Gates McFadden, and I've seen her for so many hours on Star Trek that talking to her, it felt like I was talking to someone who was literally from the future. I mean, you love, 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 love that show. I mean, I'm, I'm not that, I'm not as big of a Trekkie as you are, so. You went into the space. You, 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 were, you were in your zone. 
<laughs> the space zone. Yes. And now is the time in the program, Callie, when I ask you because I got to know and I want to know and I need to know what you're watching. What am I watching? What I've been dying over and loving. Um, I know you've been watching the Olympics and yes. I, I was hadn't been really following. So then I found Kevin Hart and Snoop Dogg's Olympic highlights on Peacock. I've been watching that too. It is hilarious they're like back and forth banter is so good did you see the one where um they were watching like equestrian horse jumping or something and snoop was talking about the horse crip walking dude callie i was just about to bring that up because i don't know if you saw this but today there was more they were showing like live equestrian events and the like regular nbc announcer like the with the regular white guy voice he comes on and he goes and now it's time for horses crip walking, oh. as Snoop Dogg likes to call it, or as we call it, equestrian events. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's already in the lexicon. <laughs> like equestrian events are now known as horses crip walking because That's of that. That's the power show. of Snoop Dogg. I was just while I was um, getting my notes together earlier, I was watching the new episode. <laughs> and they <laughs> They were watching this bodybuilder, you know, just like they were back and forth. And Snoop was like, man, he swolled up. They just kept talking about how swole he was. And then Kevin was like, you know, he's got to throw that leotard away. I, I guarantee he did a, a shit in it, at least a little shit. And they just started making shit jokes for so long. And they were like literally cracking themselves up. Kevin Hart was losing it. And he keeps like complimenting Snoop Dogg's turtlenecks. And then Snoop will pose for him. And because they're on Peacock, they can swear. So they're just like talking about like motherfuckers all the time. It is. It's the best Olympic highlights I've ever seen. I hope that they host like everything now. It's definitely giving me the feel goods. Um, nice. And then I watched this. Um, well, have you been watching White Lotus now? Not yet, but I will after the Olympics. There was this. Um, episode where the dad finds out that his father um had died of AIDS and was uh gay and he didn't know this and he was just like a little in shock his dad was married and uh the daughter was like why are you do you think it's like demasculates him what if he was a bossy bottom (laughs) (laughs) wait that's on that show yeah a bossy bottom I love that term now so there I love that show. Anyway, so that was White Lotus update. Um, And then I watched this movie Gunpowder Milkshake on Netflix. And that is... Okay. It's a group of women assassins that have to reunite to save this eight-year-old that's kidnapped. Blah, 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 backstory. But what's really good about it is the fucking fight scenes. You know, I love a good fight choreography. I'm not really just like a straight-up action movie person, but this one is really, really good. It's got... Angela Bassett in it, underused. She does some great kills. The really good kills come like in the second half, but it is really good. Oh, and then the woman that played Cersei Lannister, she's in it too. Mm -hmm. It's really good. Really uh, fast action. I'm going to rewatch the fight scenes. And then I watched Assassination Nation on Hulu. I thought it was very feministy. I really liked it. Um, I think I was the only one after I read the reviews. (laughs) But... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I I know people had mixed feelings about it. Um it had Harry Harry Neff. Have we had her in bust yet? 
That's a good question. I know that we have asked for Hari Neff multiple times, but I don't think I she's remember. actually been in the magazine. I could sort of picture it, but then I think I may have just made up the picture in my head. But um, also Suki Waterhouse and um, Joe McHale. Um, and this guy, Lucas Gage, who's also in White Orchids. He plays the waiter in that. I love him. Um, anyway, so it was really good, I thought, because it's like all about, uh, well, there's like some grooming and then some like, uh, there's like a hack leak and all these teens fucking phones are full of nudes. I'm so glad I didn't have a cell phone when I was in high school. That pressure. Because <laughs> they would be full of your vagina. <laughs> well, I don't even take nudes now. I mean, you know, there'll be like a beach tip pickup in there, but I'm not a nudes person. So right. just the the fact that these kids have so much pressure to send. And a lot of it is like how to take the perfect nude. And this one girl's like obsessed with nudes. Anyway, it's sort of like a witch hunt to figure out, like, you know, the whole town goes crazy because they're all turning on each other. Um, there's some really good kills in there. There was, like, a really good razor blade soap weapon that I enjoyed. Um, Dang. Yeah, and, and it, basically it's just, like, a group of four girls who uh, are final girl style. Um, I liked it, and there was good blood. I may be the only one. <laughs> <laughs> What have you been watching? Olympics highlights and so the here are the few things that I want to say about the Olympics. Obviously, the whole Simone Biles thing. She's changing the culture of so many things of like how we talk about mental health, of like how we learn to say no and set healthy boundaries. But also, more specifically, there's this culture of silent suffering little girls in gymnastics yep. specifically like the a whole Olympic team getting molested by one guy, like countless people being abused and berated and like bullied into gold medal position by these, like these, these coaches, I will put that in quotes, but like these coaches, you know, like forcing people, forcing these little girls to like, to do superhuman things while injured, whether they're ready, whether they want to or not. And like, I think what Simone Biles is doing by standing up for her own health is amazing. And I think it's going to change the whole culture of gymnastics. 100 degrees. She is the goat for that. She's a goat. She's just a goat. Everything she's doing is everything amazing. she does. And it takes so much fucking strength to be like, fuck, you know, I'm not doing it. Yeah. Exactly. And I also want to say that I am so excited that women's skateboarding is in the Olympics. I loved watching it. I loved watching all three of the medalists this year. They were all teenage girls. Yeah. Japan's Momiji Nishia is 13 years old. She's got the very first gold medal ever in women's street skateboarding and then in the silver medal position was another 13 year old race allele from brazil who was just a little firecracker and then the uh the bronze medalist is also japanese funa nakiyama and she's only 16 years old the oldest medalist in this competition is 16 and the other two are 13 and the other person who i'm loving at the olympics is raven saunders from south carolina uh, she won a silver medal for women's shot put. 
And when she was on the metal podium, she made an X with her arms over her head that kind of looked like Wakanda forever. Um, and when she was asked by the Associated Press what it meant, she explained that it is for it represents the intersection of where all people who are oppressed meet. Oh, and, and I don't know if you know that there's like this dumbass Olympics rule that you can't protest. Oh, any kind of like they're trying to keep all politics out of the Olympics. Mm. And so it's being sort of it's being, you know, considered by the Olympic committee and then, you know, about what they're going to do about it. And if there's going to be any consequences and on Twitter, Raven Saunders was like, let them try and take this medal. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of love her. I want to get her on this show. Dude, that would be awesome. Let them try to take this medal. It's funny as fuck. So obviously I'm full on into the Olympics and all the backstories that go with it. I also watched a documentary that I liked very much called The Body Fights Back. Um, it's an independent documentary by an Estonian journalist named Marian Vosumets. And it's about five different people navigating diet culture and eating disorders. You can see it on all the streaming channels. It's on Apple TV and YouTube and Prime. I think I watched it on Vimeo. And it's one of these things where it's like very probing and in-depth. And as someone with like lifelong eating disorders, I felt so many things. Like I felt seen and validated and recognized, but also like hugely triggered and like, oh, mm. wow, I want to do all of those disordered things. Cause I was, you know, it was everybody like was describing in depth, all the disordered things that they had done and it, everything. I was like, oh yeah, I've done that. Or like, oh yeah, I want to do that. Oh no. <laughs> so after watching it, like the movie was almost too good. Like I needed to take a few steps back. I think it's so weird. Like when you have, um, like, a a disorder of some kind, like it's so hard to engage with it without engaging with it. Yeah. I would. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Without like re reminding yourself of what it, Oh wow. yeah. That's I was like, I love that movie part. so much. I'm never going to eat again. <laughs> oh my God. Emily coming over there and feeding you right now. <laughs> I've eaten. Don't worry. Um, and I'm also watching a triumvirate of trashy dating shows. I'm watching, Love is Blind after the altar. If everybody remembers that during lockdown, everybody was watching Love is Blind, which was a Netflix dating show where people were in pods and could only talk to each other and never saw oh, each yes, other. Oh, yes, I loved that. And so they had like an after the altar, like three episode arc where you got to see where everybody is now. And that was exciting. I'm watching The Bachelorette speed towards its conclusion. And it's trash, but I am invested. I want to know who Katie's going to pick. And I've been watching Love Island, which is insidious. It's on Paramount Plus. And if you have Paramount Plus, which we have, like it's on a, a few times a week on CBS anyway. But if you have Paramount Plus, it's on on the day's that it's not normally on network TV. So like I can fucking watch these freaks almost every day. <laughs> and it's like in real time. It's like, Oh my God, who's, who's putting lotion on whose back today? Like, Is that the one where they can't have sex or they lose money. No, that's too hot to handle. This is that's just, so they're having many. sex. There are so many of these shows. And then there's that fuck boy show. I haven't seen that yet. I have not seen the Fuckboy show. What is it? Fuckboy Island or will. something like that? Fuckboy Island. <laughs> and yeah, I, I haven't, but. And I haven't watched the one where they wear the masks 
like the mass Singer dating show yet. I don't, I don't know if that's out yet. I, I'm not sure if that was just the promo that came out or the whole thing, but there I'm definitely going to watch so many dating shows. The masked dater or whatever they want to call it. At some point you should just, we should do a show where you rank your favorite dating shows. Ugh, Let's get a dating they're show. They're all so terrible. <laughs> I am the dating show expert. <laughs> um, and the last thing that I've been watching, of course, is the Majestic Pop-Tarts Patreon page. Um, this is our way to help keep Bust alive. And hopefully those of you within the sound of my voice will be excited by the goodies that we've hooked up for Pop-Tarts listeners at patreon.com slash Pop-Tarts podcast. Callie and I, with the help of Team Bust, have been typing up show notes exclusively for Patreon donors that include links to what every single guest has been watching for all 113 episodes. Ooh. If you're not sure what to watch next, you can just pop on there and be like, oh yeah, Gates McFadden has great taste. I'm going to see what she's up to. We've got totally ad-free episodes available. There's exclusive content on there including an amazing episode we taped with Big Frida and so much more. Check out all the goodies that we have hooked up for sponsors for the show at patreon.com slash Pop-Tarts podcast. And speaking of which, I wanted to take this opportunity to give a big shout out to our newest and highest level donor, Valerie Bronte. Yeah. Your support means the world to us, Val. Thank you for being a friend. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you, Val. Weird V in the house. <laughs> Weird V. <laughs> and and thanks to our luscious producer and sound engineer, Logan Del Fuego. <sighs> Muy caliente, Logan. And of course, our girl gang at Bust Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems and on Instagram at Rems Emily, but you cannot find Callie on social media, so don't try, right? That is correct. <laughs> You can email us both. I'm at emilyrems at bust.com. Callie W at bust.com. And you can learn more about this show at bust.com slash Pop-Tarts. And finally, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us get the word out. And we super duper appreciate it. Until next time. Mm-hmm. Hold on. I'm sorry. My cat is trying to get into this turkey bag and she will not stop. It's rocking on the table, and I keep, I'm afraid she's not even here. Well, I understand the turkey bag. Why not? I mean, if <laughs> I were a cat, I know. Okay. I kept now, trying to pause her. She was like, climbing. <laughs> but is the turkey, the turkey is in the bag, right? So it's a live turkey or just sliced? Oh, no, it's just a turkey sandwich. <laughs> she was in the other room, and now she's on to the cane. <laughs> what's, your, what's your cat's name? Lana. Lana, okay. She was giving a For the record, my cat Irving is next to me right now, and he is a perfect angel on earth. He's not trying to cause a ruckus. (laughs) Her dedication was very serious. Now she's on the edge. Okay, square. All right, all right. Are we good, Kathy? Yeah. All right.